We've been talking these weeks about joy. And next Sunday we'll finish this series up. And a lot of my focus has been, where do we get our joy from? What's the grounds for our joy? And last week we talked especially about this idea of, of idols and the things that um, mean so much to us that are good gifts from God, but they become the grounds of our joy. We talked about money and we talked about achievement, accomplishment, people's admirations of us. We talked about vacations and leisure. Uh, we talked about the desire for peace. And if those things come, go... They come and then they go, kind of lose our joy. And today I want to kind of continue that same thing, theme, but focusing not so much on the things that we get our joy from, but for the people that we get our joy from. And the question I want us to ask is when we think about the meaningful people in our lives, do we love them or do we really worship them? Is it love or is it worship? Now, you may or may not know that behind the movie Jerry Maguire was a real-life person, loosely based on the life of Lee Steinberg, who was a famous sports agent. In fact, he was so, success, so successful over the early part of his career, he negotiated over $3 billion worth of athletes' contracts. Um, again, back in time a little bit, so most of you wouldn't know a lot of the people that he dealt with. Ben Roethlisberger is one of the few in the NFL that's still playing that he uh, negotiated his contract for. He was considered the golden boy in this career. And then he started running into some problems. <clears throat> his dad, whom he describes as the rock in his life, was diagnosed with cancer. And from the time he was diagnosed until he actually died was a long, brutal, uh, hard-to-watch suffering. And then he had two sons, both of whom were diagnosed with an incurable eye disease, genetic. They had a house that was flooded out, and uh, the mold and mildew and so forth made it necessary to demolish the house, tear it down. And then his wife, the You Complete Me woman, divorced him. And Lee Steinberg ended up in the bottom of a bottle of vodka. Now, the question I want you to wrestle with this morning is the, the people that you love the most, your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your dad, your mom, your son, your daughter, important friends in your life. Do you love them? That's a good thing. Or does it go beyond that? And one of the ways that you can tell if it goes beyond that, that is whether or not that's either taken away or compromised in some way, that relationship, and can you still delight in the Lord? I don't mean, do you not cry? I don't mean, do you not feel sorrow at loss? But I mean, can you find, do you find this settled rest, the ground of your stability being found in the Lord or all these people? I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to read first 14 verses there. This is a, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I think, a troubling passage to read on Father's Day. And, and I, I got to confess to you, it was yesterday that it dawned on me the significance of this passage where God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son uh, Isaac to do that on Father's Day. I think this was God's leading, though, and so we are where we are 
going to read it and, and see if God has something to say to us. Uh, just an FYI, book that I suggested last week, Tim Keller's uh, book on counterfeit gods. Uh, Tim does an extended section on this very uh, story in there, handles it much better than I ever could, and uh, I highly recommend that book uh, in general. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to read. Father, I pray this morning for eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to be receptive uh, to what the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, has to say to us. And uh, I have a long life to look back on um, a lot of seasons of idolatry, and and I would have thought many times that I, I just love this, or I just love that. I would have never called it worship, and yet um, progressively through my life, you have peeled back that fake facade and revealed the true nature of my idolatry. We're made to worship. That's, that's who we are. You made us to worship. And if we do not set our affections ultimately on you through Christ, we will cast about for many other things. And in this case, as we talked this morning, other people. And help us to honestly, faithfully, accurately assess. Are the relationships in our life as they should be? Or have they taken on a life that they should not have? We really... Do we really stand or fall based on someone? Or do we stand or fall based on you? Muzzle the enemy this morning. Bind him so that he has no effect on us. Instead, unleash the spirit for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll give you a little background before we read this story. Abraham, called by God, Genesis chapter 12, to become the father of a new nation. He was the forefather of the Hebrew people. And in Genesis 12, God asked him to leave where he lived with his extended family and what is today Iraq, go to Canaan. And he told him in verses 2 and 3, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. He says, I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Um, I'm going to uh, make your um, offspring affect positively the rest of the world. And then in verse 7 of that chapter, he says, I'm going to give you a, a descendant. I'm going to give you a son. Now, that seemed highly unlikely to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, because Abraham was 75 at the time, Sarah 65. They had no children. Prospect, not good that they ever would. It seemed unreasonable at that age. For me, it seemed undesirable at that age. And God understood that Abraham was going to have some skepticism about that, and so he visits him again, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18 actually makes a physical visit to reassure him that a, he has a plan in place that includes descendants. Now, if you know the story, you know that Sarah wasn't convinced and did an end-around play in between there, gave her servant uh, Hagar to Abraham, and the two of them had a child because this was typically done in ancient times where you could take a servant. If you were sterile, you take a servant woman, you give her to your husband, they have a child, and it's counted as yours. It's reckoned as yours. God's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I had in mind. I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. And so lo and behold, we get to chapter 21. God gives uh, Abraham and Sarah a, a son. They call him Isaac. And by this time, Abraham is 100 years old 
And Sarah is 90 years old. How many of you women would like to give birth at 90? I didn't think so. But then comes chapter 22. We're not sure how much time elapsed, how old is Isaac, maybe 12, 13, 14, who knows. And all of a sudden, all of their hopes and dreams come to a sliding halt. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Have you ever read this as a parent and just froze? I must have read this passage a hundred times in my life. And I remember when my kids were in the house growing up, I could never get through this without the pages getting wet. Because this is a test I would have flunked. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. And then he chopped wood for a fire with a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. And so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. But we have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. And I, I just, I would have folded at that question. The Bible writers are usually spare with details about incidents. And I, I have to believe that as this unfolded, he puts his son on the altar, tears streaming down his face, shaking his head as he's doing all this. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now... I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. You should not read that as if God didn't know how Abraham was going to respond. Time and time again, the scripture tells us that God knows everything yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But there was a, there was a time that Abraham didn't know and understand where the ends of his love were and where the beginnings of his worship was. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh, Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. <clears throat> now, if you have read this passage knowing something of the um, tenets of the Old Testament, 
you might have scratched your head and said, I do not understand this because God has come out very vociferously against his people offering their children as sacrifices. In fact, that was one of the, one of the things that triggered God's judgment with them is they would continually be drawn to their neighbor's gods and most of their neighbor's religions included offering children as sacrifices. God says in Jeremiah 32, 35, when he was again condemning them for doing this, he said, look, it never occurred to me, it never crossed my mind to have you offer your children or offer anyone as human sacrifice. He said, well, how do you reconcile those things with this? First of all, you have to realize that this is 600 years before God gave the written law to Moses. So there, was, there were no commands that were written down, we know of anyway, prior to that. It's interesting, there's also no evidence that um, any follower of Yahweh prior to this ever considered offering a human being a sacrifice or was ever told by God to offer a human being a sacrifice. And this is 1,500 years before God's comment in Jeremiah. So all we could say is that if I would have heard this call from heaven, sacrifice your son, I'm like, I need to see some ID. Um, I'm not buying this. But you remember, Abraham has had an ongoing conversation with God. God spoke to him in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He came in person with two other angels in Genesis 18. And so I think when this God called out from heaven, Abraham says, this is my father. This is my father. I get it. I'm going to respond. Do you notice that God said, do this? And it says there's no pleading, there's no objection. Next verse says, early the next morning. It's a test. God says it right at the beginning of the chapter. It's a test. There's no grading on a curve. There's no B minus, D plus. It's strictly pass-fail. And as I said, I would have failed miserably. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about this idea of do we worship the Isaacs in our life or do we love the Isaacs in our life? And there is a massive difference. Let me take you back to Romans chapter 1. We touched on this last week. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1. And in this passage, beginning of verse 18, Paul is um, in a very short fashion um, kind of going over the history of humanity. Namely, it's rebellion against God. And this is what he says, verse, beginning verse 24. And so God abandoned them, meaning people, to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And here's the key sentence in this text. So they worshiped and served the things slash people that God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. And make no mistake about it, when we worship people, we open ourselves in a big way to sin. Not only sins of commission, but as I'm going to explain in a minute, sins of omission. He goes on to say, uh, worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. 
Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, this is, the, this is the dangerous place, this idea of I need someone, him, her, to complete me. This is where it, it leads us. Idolatry. It leads us to worship people when God says, only worship me. I give you people as good gifts, but only worship me. Don't worship what I've made. Don't worship who I've made. Worship me. When we worship people, what we are basically saying is, I need you to complete me. I need you to, in order to be happy. I need you to um, do this, not do this, to say this, not say this. I need you to build me up. I need you to encourage me. If you don't, I'm, 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 I'm deflated. I'm, I feel worthless. I need you to be this way for me. In other words, what we are in effect telling people, even though they would never hear it from our lips, and even though we would never articulate it this way, we are essentially telling people, you, I need you, I need you to be my Savior instead of Jesus. Now let me flesh this out a little bit, pulling from this text, starting with, when we worship what is created or who is created, rather than the creator, we open ourselves up to ungodly relationships. We open ourselves unto, uh, to ungodly relationships. Now, the one illustration is given to us in this text, homosexual relationships. Man drawn to man, woman drawn to woman. And God says the fundamental underpinnings of that is you're worshiping what I've created rather than the creator. You're worshiping a person and what they can do for you and, and what they can say to you and how they can make you feel. This could be done in a heterosexual relationship. You work with a guy that is in the cubicle next to you and your marriage isn't going so well. And here's a guy who listens to you intently when you kind of pour out your heart to him. He listens to you in a way your husband doesn't. He, he, he tells, he confides in you in a way that your husband would never confide in you and you, you feel like, I, I, I've found my soulmate. And you know that somewhere in the Bible it says that God gives you the desires of your heart and you have fixated on this man that he's the desire of your heart, so surely God wants you to have this relationship. These are the kinds of things that we become vulnerable to, vulnerable to when we worship whom God created rather than the creator himself. Maybe you're single and you're dating somebody that's not a believer and you are. Uh, years back, I had some guy come to me and he was, that was the situation in their relationship. He was dating a girl. Uh, she wasn't a Christian. And he was asking for my advice, not about whether or not to break up with her, but in the relationship. And I'm like, I'll just call him Jim. I said, Jim, what about this thing with you're not, he, you're a Christian, she's not. I said, if this relationship continues to go on, you know, you're going to get married, you're going to find yourself, you're trying to plow to the north and she's trying to plow to the south. 
I said, she, she's not a believer. He goes, we're going to take care of that. And I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, we're going to take care of that. He was confident that when push came to shove, he could make her see the light and she would become a believer. Oh, listen, young person, or older person for that matter, don't buy that lie. We have people at this church that have gone that route. And if you love someone, you're not a Christian, you love someone so much you want to be with them, and you know it's a deal breaker or a deal maker that you become a Christian, what are you going to do? Is it real? The proof of that become, comes after the wedding. See, if, we, if people matter more than God, that, that's what we're, essentially what we're talking about in worship. People matter more than God. You and I become vulnerable, open to ungodly relationships. We could talk about codependent relationships where we are in relationship with somebody, and maybe it's a family member uh, or a good friend, and they're so volatile, and we feel the responsibility to make everything um, smooth for them so we don't confront them on their lying, we don't, uh, we don't bail, you know, some relationships that might be so toxic we need to get out of, but we, we kind of level the, level the field for them, we make the waters calm for them, we don't speak to them in ways that God might want us to speak to them, we don't love them in ways God might want us to love them because we have to keep everything on an even keel for them. When we worship people, we open ourselves to ungodly relationships. And we, in turn, close ourselves off to anything that might rock the, the boat in a relationship. We're open to God ungodly relationships, and we become more closed to doing and saying things that might rock the boat in a particular relationship, like your marriage. both from my own experience and from the conversations I've had with many married couples, I know one of the tough things that we have as husbands and wives, um, is to, tough things that we do, is to have conversations about areas of struggle in our marriage. And if you're like Betty and I, we just don't go there any more than we have to. It's like neither of us like conflict. So tendency to sweep things under the rug, you know as well as I do, that's not healthy. So if you have issue in your marriage where you know that God wants you to speak about it, do the wrestling between you, the hard stuff that you need to with conversation and, and prayer and maybe even getting some outside help if necessary. But you won't go there because it's, it's too, it might, it might be like we can't talk together for a day or two, or it might be that, that there's a, a coldness be, between the two of us for a season, and we don't want to risk that, even though we might know deep in our hearts that it's God's desire that we go there and do rock that boat for a good outcome in the future. I would say the first at least 15 years of my marriage, maybe longer, I was a total idolater with my wife. Now, I still fight that. Don't get me wrong. I still fight that, but I fight it. And I, I, would, I would not say things and not do things because I didn't want to rock the boat because I worshiped her. You might have that issue with your children. Um, 
when my kids were growing up, I saw myself in those teen years, you know, from like 11 to, I don't know, 17, 18. I saw myself as a dad as an abject failure. And as I look back on those years, um, after the kids are all grown up and they're out on their own, and now I don't have to father like that anymore, I look back and I realize that it wasn't that I was a failure. I failed, I made mistakes, but what was happening was I would see my children's displeasure at what I asked of them or what I forbid them from doing or the things that I would speak into their lives about trying to get them to think differently. Their displeasure was reflected back on me and it hurt. You see, I was was making more of them than God. The things that I said to them were the things that God wanted me to say to them, but I was was more concerned about their approval than I was about God's approval. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's just worship. It's just worship. And we can struggle with the same thing in the body of Christ. I mean, the scriptures are clear, aren't they? that we are responsible to an extent for each other. And that means that we pray and intercede for each other when we struggle. It means we come alongside and provide practical help when there's needs. And it also means that we speak into the lives of brothers and sisters when we see things that are not right. And I mean, let's face it, how many of us are willing to do that in 2017? We're afraid that they might become upset with us, that they won't like us anymore, that they'll talk about us behind our backs to other people about how mean-spirited we are and how easy it is to come in here on a Sunday morning and find our seat and sit down and look at our people to our left and to our right, say hi. The last song, the last prayer, amen, we get up, Go out the door, back the aisle, out the doors. Hi, have a good day. And we're done. We're done in terms of interacting with the people of God. We don't know them. I wonder sometimes if it's not preferable for us not to know them because then we do have a greater accountability and responsibility to be, be brothers and sisters. You say, oh, if there's problems, if there's sin in a brother or sister's life in the church, that's, that's your problem, and that's the elder's problem. That's our problem. We're a family, right? Family of faith, it's our problem. If we worship people, we're not going to say, do the things that maybe God wants us to say and do in their lives. What about if you have a friend who's not a believer? And you know you should talk to him about Jesus, but man, if you do, they might think you're crazy. They might think you're a religious oddwad. They might talk about you to other people that you know. They might end the friendship. Just as a footnote, I wonder how many of us would acknowledge that we have had friends who are not believers for a long period of time and never talked to them about Jesus. And the longer it goes, the harder it becomes because that's a significant area of our life that's been shut off from them. And now that they know that about us, they're not sure they want the friendship to continue. Listen, if you have a friend with 
a friendship with an unbeliever, get to Jesus early in the conversation. Get to Jesus early in the relationship. Some of what we anticipate that they'll cut us off just isn't true. Some of the fears that we have probably won't be realized, but better to find that out early than to have the longevity of the friendship continue to make us quiet, 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 and we neglect this great call of God to love them for Jesus' sake in that way. Do you love that person's relationship more than you love God, whom you know is telling you to talk to them about Jesus? This kind of idolatry opens us up to ungodly relationships, closes us off to saying things, doing things that might rock the boat. Listen, when we perceive people like this, when we have these kinds of expectations of people, these are impossible demands that other people can't, um, can't meet for us. Your husband, your wife cannot be your savior. Your children cannot be your savior. That close, close friend on the team cannot be your savior. You cannot depend upon them to keep you happy. What happens when they're gone? What happens when they end the relationship, won't speak to you anymore? What happens when there's friction between the two of you? If the grounds of your joy are other people, it's essentially worship because you can't be happy without them. When the scripture from Genesis to Revelation calls us to be happy in God. In fact, as John Piper puts it in his book, uh, When I Don't Desire God, we're called to actually fight for the joy in God. How do we do that? Let me just give you a couple of basics. This is going to be old hat. We touched on one of them last week. How do we fight for joy in God? We're going to wrap this up next week when we talk about the, the Christ sunshine, where our sunshine ought to be found. First is the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, you need the Word, you need the word of God if you're going to be happy in God. You need the Word of God, not just to have it on your coffee, coffee table covered with dust. You need to eat Remember a couple of the prophets were told to eat the word? Ezekiel, John, you need to eat the word of God. That means every, every morning you're, you're feeding yourself with the precious nutrition that God has left for you in the word of God. As we said last week, if you're in this life like you and I are, you're in this world, you're in this culture, we are being, being bombarded day in and day out with find your joy in a new Lexus. Find your joy in a dating relationship you get online. Uh, find your joy in a new career track. Go to this website and find, get a headhunter to find you a new job. That's what we're hearing. Whereas the word of God is telling us again and again, no, no, find your joy in God, meaning worship him and him alone. When you and I lose someone, we weep, right? If somebody dies in your family, we weep. And the Bible never says don't weep over these human relationships. It just says that we weep differently, right? We grieve not as those who have no hope, but as those who do. Word of God. You need the word of God in order to be found happy in God. You need the people of God. That means you need to, we need to rub shoulders with other brothers and sisters. We need to have relationships with them that we pretty tough to, 
develop just here on a Sunday morning. So get involved in a care group. Come to an adult Bible fellowship on a Sunday morning where you're talking with people before and after services. Come to events that we have where, again, you're talking to people before and after. Build some relationships with peop some people in your family of faith because they can help s nourish your soul when you're on the slippery slope of worshiping your Isaacs instead of just loving them. And last thing is prayer. Prayer. I shared this before, but almost two years ago now, um, since God leading me to pr pray a prayer that I would have never contemplated praying before. And to be honest, I didn't really want to pray it at the outset. Probably couldn't have prayed it five years ago. But I began to pray that God, would, if the most treasured thing to me in this world, in this life, is my wife. And I began to pray that if God takes her from me someday, that I would continue to worship him and find my joy in him. Will I weep? You betcha. I'll be able to fill up five lakes with tears. But I prayed to God and I'm praying to God, God, help me to find my hope in you and my delight in you to be settled even in my weeping that you are the grounds of my joy and my delight not to lash out against you and not to demand of you what were you thinking how could you do that to me but to find my delight and my soulless and my satisfaction in God we should pray for joy in God Acts chapter, seven, uh, chapter 14 the apostle says that God gives us things like good crops and he gives us air to breathe and he, and he gives us good things including joyful hearts isn't that great? We can't just fabricate joy in our hearts, but we can fight for joy in our hearts and we can pray for joy in our hearts because make no mistake about it, all of us are going to have wheels come off in our lives where we don't think we can stand it, we don't think we can survive. Tom, Tom Patterson is uh, 92 years old. He's a believer. He wrote a book 20-some years ago, uh, Living the Life You Were Meant to Live. He's a really intriguing guy, kind of an entrepreneur, um, he actually uh, built Space Mountain at Disneyland in, in uh, California. He holds the first patent for ATM pin technology. He developed the first lightweight uh, camcorder. He's worked in the aerospace industry, consulted with IBM and some of the big uh, companies in America. He married his wife when he was 18. They had four children of their own. They had three they adopted. And then he started having some problems. Their 12-year-old daughter was diagnosed with cancer, and she passed away before her 12th birthday. He had a good, long marriage to his wife, but she died when she, uh, they were married 50 years. And people who were married a long time will tell you, no, it doesn't get easier the longer you've been married to say goodbye. Not long after his wife's death, one of his sons was killed in an airplane crash. And not long after that, another son was killed in a car crash. And he was asked last year, in light of all of this trauma that you've experienced, in light of all of these things that have gone wrong with you, how have you endured? And this is what he said. He said, we must come to a point where we fully surrender to Christ. Nothing held back. That's worship, right? Nothing held back. All the events of great suffering in your life will bring you to that point. You can choose to recede or you can choose to surrender. I understand to mean you can run from God or you can run to God. I choose to surrender. 
Listen, make no mistake about it. Everybody you love will someday let you down to some degree or another. Everybody you love will someday let you down. That's your boyfriend, that's your wife, that's your children, that's your parents, that's your best friend on the team. Even the people who think you can do no wrong, the people that that we call your fans, even they are going to let you down someday. None of them can bear the weight of your expectations of them. And because they cannot give you all that you'd like to receive from them, if your love for them borders on worship, joy is going to elude you because you were made to worship God, not them. And so I think uh, Abraham would call to us from um, Genesis 22 and say, worship the Lord and him only. Let me take you to Hebrews 11. We're going to wrap up with this. Hebrews 11. This is kind of the, maybe the epilogue for the story about Abraham. Verse 17, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. And of course, faith is the underpinnings of worship. Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. In other words, Abraham was confident that God's promise would come true, that it would not fail him. And so Abraham reasoned that if if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Do you remember that one verse in Genesis 22 that we read when Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey. We're going to go up there and worship. And then we'll be right back. Did you catch that? If he's going to kill his son on the mountain, who's coming back with him? That's the kind of confidence that worship breeds. Isaac, I love you. God, I worship you. Let's pray. For our children for our husbands and wives, for our parents, for our extended family, for our close friends, for the people we admire the most. May we develop nothing but love for them and for you, all of our worship, for your glory and our good so that indeed you might be greatly satisfied in us, glorified in us, as we find we're most satisfied in you. Give us the joy that we desire, Lord, not in all the stuff that's offered in this world, not in all the people gifts that you give us, nothing in what you've created, but that our worship would be reserved for the creator himself. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and continue to worship.